I would especially be grateful if you would just give the Lord Jesus a round of applause and not me. That would be, that would be extra. Although I'm grateful for Rollins' words of affirmation. He's a great friend, and I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't know any two people that I trust more than Rollin and B. And Rollin, uh, if you've not been here before, is a good man. His wife is a good woman. I've watched them for 20 years of friendship and seen how they live privately, financially, morally, sexually pure, before they were married, uh, devout, humble, truth-telling people who just do their best to honor God and other people. And uh, Rollin did not grow up in a Christian household necessarily, but, and uh, I didn't either. I, I kind of was exposed to church at least once a month. You know, we went to church off and on, but my parents didn't grow up in religious families, and they were learning as they went along the way about God, and uh, both of us kind of came to a climactic moment our first year in college, along with about probably 15 other friends who were in our immediate friend circle, and really came to know and believe that, number one, God is real, He exists, And number two, that he sent this man Jesus into the world as the word of God, the exact representation of God, and that that Jesus shows us who God is. And he offered his life and he died to pay for what he said are the sins of the whole world. And that all of the world, all the people in the earth, all of the nations, not just Jews, but all of the ethnicities of the world could be reconnected to God through this one person, Jesus And that after he was killed, he was raised from the dead, seen by many people, touched. They ate with him, ate fish with him for more than a month. And then at a certain point in time, he he ascended to heaven where he waits until the right time in human history where he will come back to rescue and claim all people who wait for him, all people who have hope in his forgiveness and in his uh, conciliatory power to take us from where we are and reconnect us to our Creator. And that's the message that gripped my heart, that, because I knew I needed forgiveness. I don't know if you were like me, but I had done a lot of wrong things. And I went into college thinking, I've got to change. I've got to stop going out and drinking and doing stuff like this and messing around. And when I get to school, I made a vow to myself, I'm going to be different. But there's a problem with going to a new place, and that is that everywhere you go, you're there. So so I went to college and did all the same stuff because you can't really change yourself. I got so many friends who try to stop cussing by putting a dollar in a jar every time they, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop. But when the heat's really on and you're really mad and whatever, what you are on the inside comes out, right? And only God has the power to change a human heart. And this is the message of the good news, that he wants to. He's real and he loves us and he wants to and what he, he longs for us to do and his purpose for us is to be deeply connected in this man Jesus, that Jesus shows us what life is really about. He shows us what humanity is supposed to be. He is the last Adam, whereas the first Adam was put into the earth to manage and steward and connect with God and he failed and his wife failed. Jesus is called in the Bible the last Adam, the renewed humanity, the one who comes and always connects 
appropriately and adequately with his Father through prayer and humility and does what God wants and he lives just like you and I lived in a human body with flesh and weakness and he was hungry and he had to eat and he walked around the earth and he suffered and he was mistreated, misunderstood, lied about, lied too, struggled and ultimately bled and he died and he went through all the same stuff that we went through and he knows you and he knows me. And what the New Testament calls us to now is to be deeply rooted in this man. Not in a philosophy, not in a moral system, but in a person and to have a relationship. And so today we want to pick up on this idea, or I want to say to you this theme that your root determines your fruit. Hidden things in your life, the hidden relationship that you build and the things you do in secret and in private and the places where you put your confidence and where you spend your personal quality time in private and secret will determine the kind of productivity that comes out of you in the long run or the course of decades or whether you have a week to live and none of us know the day will die or, or 40 or 50 or 60 more years. Your root determines your fruit. And we're going to take this, this morning from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. The letter is called Colossians. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's one of a number of letters that make up what we call the New Testament. The New Testament is four biographical accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a historical book called Acts, and then a bunch of letters that people wrote to different believing communities to say, this is who God is, and this is how we should live in light of Him. And we're going to read Colossians. We'll start with chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. To read the point, we're going to begin with the end in mind. Stephen Covey, a Mormon, who I don't always quote Mormons, but he wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of them was, highly effective people begin with the end in mind. And so where we want to go today is talk about our roots. So let's read this, and then we're going to back up to the beginning of the letter and read through what Paul says to build up to this instruction. He says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord... So continue to, the Greek says, live in Him or walk in Him. Um, Find your existence in Him. He says, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, uh, at the beginning of football season, you know, this is football season, right? Everybody's starting to watch their favorite pro teams or their favorite college teams. A long time ago, Vince Lombardi, one of the famous coaches for the Green Bay Packers, would take professional football players and hold up a football in front of them and say, this gentleman is a football. And from that statement, he would begin to rebuild their fundamental understanding of what it takes to be a football player. I played football in high school. My dad was a football coach. Through college, I played football. And every year at the beginning of the year in camp, we would always relearn how to get in a three-point stance. We would always learn, if you're a receiver, how to hold your hands when you catch the football. You can't outgrow, whether in basketball or football or any sport or piano or tennis, the same old boring strokes, the same fundamental disciplines or elementary teachings that make you great. Everybody loves a big dunk, but big dunks don't win championships, right? And coaches who know how to coach stress the fundamentals of the elementary things. When you build buildings, and they talk about, some of my friends talked about being in Guam during a big earthquake. It was a 9.0 on the Richter scale that shook the island of Guam, and buildings fell down. In the building they were in, this hotel, they were sleeping in a room, 911. 
And all this building started shaking. And they're like, oh, God, what is happening? The whole earth was shaking. Things were falling. But the building that they were in was built well. It had a proper foundation that was dug really deep into the ground. And it was properly uh, engineered to be um, you know, adequately standing <laughs> in the middle of a, a shaking like that. And so what you see in the Bible is these metaphors of, of buildings and foundations and roots and secret things that people don't see. And just like in sports, agriculture, building, or any other area of our life, we know that down at the bottom, down at the base, is what really matters. It's not the flash or the makeup or the things that you see on the external that ultimately matters. It's the things that are down at the bottom. And Paul in this letter is going to encourage these people to live in Jesus and be rooted in Him. Now, this is the first instruction that he gives in the letter. Before this, he gives explanations. And I want to go back and read sort of verse by verse. This will take us you know, 25 minutes or so to read through this passage and expound on maybe six or seven things that we see here. We're going to see the presence of God. He's going to talk about prayer, the possibility of a productive life, the person of Jesus, the people of God, and then he starts with his practical instructions. So let's read Colossians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God the Father. The first thing that we see as he opens up his letter is he says, I'm an apostle. That means essentially a representative or a delegate. Uh, my, one, we had a friend who was over in Greece recently a few years ago who was reading the newspaper and he saw for a pizza company they had an ad in the paper that said, Apostle Wanted. The Greek word for apostle just means an errand boy. It means somebody who's going out on behalf of someone else to do some task. So when you hear people who are talking about being an apostle, they're not saying that there's something great. Being an apostle is not some position or title in the church that somebody should get paid a lot of money for or is like the hierarchical top position that somebody should attain to. What he means is I'm just an errand boy. And who I am running errands for, who I'm representing, who I'm appointed delegate for is this man Christ, Jesus, by the will of God. And what Paul starts with is what the whole Bible is assuming or presuming, that God is real. That God exists. And this is a difficulty for a lot of people in our culture right now who don't have this bedrock at the bottom of their belief system, at the bottom of their heart, that God is real and God is true. And I don't have a time uh, today to give an apologetic for the existence of God, but if you're interested in such things, there are lots of good modern books as well as um, you know, books over the last 100 to 200 years that give various kinds of arguments for the existence of God. One would be, uh, the moral argument that C.S. Lewis laid out in a book called Mere Christianity, where he said, everybody in the world uses language like this. You should go to class. You should not hit your brother. Oh, you ought to go to work on time. Oh, man, you shouldn't have cheated on that test. No matter what it is, or where, what country you come from, or what your culture is, Everybody in the whole world and all of human existence has used language like this, I should or I should not. 
And what that does is shows that we share a common moral law. And Lewis from that point argues that a common morality and a sense of absolute truth, even though cultures vary slightly on what that truth should be, morality exists in humanity, and therefore we can deduce, he says, that there's someone who gave that to us. There's a reason why it exists. Or you might use arguments like uh, the anthropic uh, principle or the cosmological arguments that look out into, the, into astronomy and into the universe to say, it seems that this world, this earth, was created for humanity to live on. And a few years ago, in the mid-20th century, when scientists were trying to uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, a program called SETI, anybody ever heard of it? Looking out into the stars and sending out, you know, uh, opening up big dishes and uh, searching for messages and radio waves and all kinds of things that they could see. Is there any possibility that any communications are coming from any other planets or any other places? They believed that there were only two or three factors that were possible for a planet out there somewhere in the galaxy to support life. And they thought it needs to be a certain distance from a star and it needs to have water. And if those conditions are met, then maybe you know, certain chemicals could grow and there could be life there and there's aliens out there somewhere. Well, as we've progressed over the last 50 to 70 years, the astronomers have found out that the conditions necessary for life on Earth are increasing exponentially. And now there's more than 200 factors they identify where they say the fact that Earth itself has life is a statistical anomaly. It should not happen. There is no planet in the whole universe that should be able to support life, much less Earth. Why do we have an abnormally large moon like we have that's just the right size that governs the tides so that the tides ebb and flow just enough to where we can have coastal cities and fish? They don't run over the coastal towns. The moon governs, gravity governs our, our, uh, our water and how it interacts with the land masses. Why is the earth on its axis tilted at such a degree to where we have polar uh, things happening and it rotates, you know, spins as it goes around the sun and is just far enough from the sun so that we neither freeze nor burn? And look at all these factors about how the earth is and how it exists. And they say, the fact that there's even life here shouldn't even happen. How did it happen? And I have a friend named Brian who he did his PhD at MIT and he looks into the into these things, and he said, uh, you know, it's kind of like going camping. If you were going camping and hiking through the woods and came upon a cabin, and you walked into the cabin, and your favorite song was playing on the radio, and pictures of your family were on the console beside the couch, and all the kinds of clothes that you like and your size were hung in the closet, and your favorite food was in the refrigerator, you would not go into that situation and think, Wow, we got th- this is by accident. How are my pictures and my clothes and my food and my music all? It looks like somebody prepared this for you. And when you look into the universe, you look into the earth, it looks, even the most ardent atheists you know, will say, when I look into biology, when I look into DNA, when I look into information theory, it looks like, but the atheists say, but we know that's not true. But what, if, you, if you step back away and just look, we see it looks like in the world God is real. God exists. And Paul is starting with this assumption. I'm an apostle. I'm a representative of Jesus. 
Because God is real, and this God who exists, who created everything, has a will. He has a purpose. He has a choosing for our lives. He has something that he wants us to do. And he is interactive with the earth. He's not deist. He's not far off. He actually expresses his will. There's a will of God, a presence of God. And when you begin to live with the reality of the presence of God, you begin to make decisions differently. And all of a sudden, when you realize that God is real and he's present, it affects the way that you treat other people and the kinds of decisions that you make even privately. And presence is something that is powerful. It's something that we're made for. I was thinking about this idea of presence, like Emily's a school teacher, fan cook, right? When the, when the students are alone in a classroom and the teacher's not in the classroom, they start balling up paper and throwing stuff at each other and passing love notes and doing whatever they do. But as soon as the teacher walks in, what happens? The presence of the authority instantly causes the, the students, the children, who intuitively know that I'm accountable to someone to straighten up and stop what they're doing. When, when your boss walks in and you're slacking, you're checking Facebook at work, you know, or when you're doing something, uh, looking at your phone and your professor's lecturing at the class, like some of you guys are doing now, just texting a little bit, just joking. And the professor walks up the aisle and looks at you. The eyes of the authority or the presence of the authority or someone to whom you're accountable, when you begin to interact and feel their presence, all of a sudden your sense of alertness goes up. We saw this in a friend of mine was telling me in an African nation, there were two rogue young elephants. And they were, they were uh, damaging crops. And a lot of times when farmers in various African regions that have elephants, have elephants as a threat, they spray chili powder or something on the plants to keep the elephants away. And they couldn't figure out how to control these elephants. And they were damaging and trampling crops and coming into different village settings and scaring people and endangering people. And for several months, they tried to control these and they couldn't figure out how to do it. And so someone had the idea to import an older male bull elephant. And when they brought the elephant in, the older male, these younger two calmed down and they walked away and they kept their distance from the older male who was more calm. And there's something about the presence of someone who's more mature than you, the presence of an authority, the presence of somebody older that makes us intuitively take our place in society or in our family or when we're mouthing off and talking about something and kids are arguing and their dad walks into the room, the presence changes. And this is what I'm trying to say to set the tone for everything that will come after this is that we have to understand God is real, and when you see him, when you understand his presence is everywhere, all of a sudden it's a game changer. Something shifts in your heart and shifts in your mind. And Paul said, now I know the purpose of my life is not to live for myself or my passions or my career, but I am an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. There's a God in the universe who has a purpose for me. He has a plan for my life. He has something that he wants me to do. There's assignment. There's meaning. And God has sent me to you, to you people. And I've got people with me, Timothy, my brother, I'm writing to you, faithful people in Colossae. And as he has got so much packed into this statement, by the will of God, he tells these people, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. What does this God want to do for people? 
He wants to give us grace. The introduction to, from Paul to these people is he says, what I, my deepest hope for you is that grace and peace will come to you from God. See, the world that we live in is a performance-based system. It's a merit, achievement-based system where all promotion and all good things in the world come based on your performance. I was a track athlete in high school, and one time there was a college football coach who was coming to recruit me, and he was passing through town, and we were at the conference championships my senior year of high school, and I didn't start running track till late, and I actually didn't know all the rules. And we got in a 200-meter race, and I mistakenly believed that in three heats of a 200, the top two finishers in each heat went to the finals because I didn't know the rules, which is not the truth. The top finisher and then the three best times after that get to go to the finals. Now, we, we had raced, I had raced in six or seven meets up until that point, in regular season meets, and there was one other guy in the conference who we always alternated who would win back and forth. I won a few, he won a few. And when we got into this conference championship meet, the gun went off, and we were racing side by side, and it came to the last probably 20 yards of the race, and I decided I'm not going to spend all my energy. I don't care if I win this heat. And this football coach was over here watching me run and I was nervous a little bit because I thought should I give everything or should I save it for the final and we went around and he ended up beating me by three steps and I slacked off at the end and came to find out that my my time was like a tenth of a second slower than the sixth person and I ended up not getting to run I was so embarrassed I didn't even make it into the finals did they give me a second chance and go oh you didn't know the rules no It's one of the few things in my life I really regret when I think, how was I so stupid? How could I not know? But in the world, in sports, and in all kinds of things, in business, you don't find people, unless their heart is full of grace, who treat you with graciousness and say, here's another chance. When you're in the military, I had another relative who was passed over for promotion. And in the Army or the Marines or the Navy, if you get passed over for promotion three times, if you don't qualify based on your performance for promotion, they politely ask you to leave. You get exited out of the military. When you're growing up in school, you get ranked based on what? Your kindness? Do you have a class rank that you boast about? I was number three in my class in high school. (laughs) Based on what? That you did community service? No, on your performance in the classroom. Everything that we're trained to do in the world, in school and in sports and in business and in military and everything in the world is all about my work ethic and you've got to prove yourself and build yourself up and build up your resume and show the world that you're worth hiring, right? And there's some truth in that. But the point is, grace is something that we all need and very few people get from anywhere else in the whole world. But the whole tone of the Bible, the whole point of the Bible is that our relationship with this God who exists is not like that at all. He is not looking at our performance saying, I'm choosing you because you are so good. He didn't look at the Jews, the Hebrews who came out of Egypt when he brought them out of slavery and say, I I picked you because of something you did. But to the contrary, in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus, he wants to appeal to them and say to them, I did not choose you because you were more numerous than other nations or because you had some beauty about you, but rather I loved you because I loved you. 
He picked them because he picked them. Because he chose them, because he wanted them, because he had some purpose in them, even though they had nothing of natural beauty, they had no accolade, no historical standing, they were never a great military power, they just came from one man who was an old guy who had a baby when he was old. That was his claim to fame. And the storyline as it, as it unravels through the, through the Bible is that God, this God who exists, wants to give you good things and me good things, Because of grace. That's his nature. He's gracious. The earth never asked to exist. You never asked to be born. How many of you had a choice in when or where you were born or who your parents were? Did you vote on your parents? Did you pick the nationality, the color of your skin, your background, your life experiences? We don't have a choice in how and when and where we are born. Everything that we have is just given to us. And this is supposed to speak a message to us deeper in our souls, not in a negative way like, oh, I have no control over my life, but actually you're breathing today. You've got food today. God has always taken care of you today, and everything that we have is because of his grace. And ultimately, he wants to take us from a a place of grace to a place of peace. He wants peace to be multiplied in our soul. How does he do it? Paul says, thirdly, he prays. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all of the saints, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, we'll we'll read through five or six verses, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Please continue. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Next slide. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all, with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And what Paul has said here is that ever since he heard about these people and how they believed in God, they believed in the grace of God through Jesus, he started to pray for them. And what you see in Paul's letters and how he writes is that prayer becomes a central part of his life and his work. And Luke, who traveled with Paul, wrote the the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. When you study Luke and his two writings and you see the influence that Paul had on him and the way that they lived as they traveled, basically nomadically from place to place over the course of many years, they depended not on their job or on their income or on their societal standing or on their family or anything else to anchor them in the world or to root them in the world, but they depended on God himself. How did they live like this, traveling over and over again? You ever traveled and been out of your home context? You ever get tired? You ever long to go back to your own bed? You want to go home to your parents' house? You want to eat out of their refrigerator? You go home on a break from college and you can't wait to get home and just have your mom cook for you or something? See, most people are rooted in natural things, but the Bible is trying to appeal to us that there is something beyond your family and your mom's fridge that you can be rooted in. It's God himself. And the way that we are rooted in God himself is through prayer. Paul says, I pray for you. Luke shows us this as he writes in Luke and Acts. In the... In the story of the baptism of Jesus, 
Luke is the only gospel writer that shows us that when Jesus was baptized, he was praying. When he goes on to the end of Jesus' life in Luke 22, when he's in the garden, before he was executed, Jesus was praying. In Acts chapter 114, when all of the people were together after Jesus had ascended, it says they continuously gathered together and they were praying. They prayed all the time. In Acts 2, after uh, Peter stood up and he preached a message and 3,000 people believed and added to the church. It says they gathered together daily and they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, it says, Acts 3, 1, were on their way to the place of prayer, the regular place of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And on the way, they healed a crippled man. For that healing, there was public attention. They preached publicly again. More people believed, but in the process, they got arrested and went to jail. After they were thoroughly examined and scourged and pushed and beat up a little bit and got to go back to their people, it says that when they got back in Acts 4, they prayed. And the place that they prayed was shaken as they prayed. And on and on and on through Luke and Acts and into the rest of the New Testament, this idea that we know God and we connect with God and God's will is done through prayer is what is urged upon us. That we would pray. We prayed on Friday night at Rollins' house. There's prayer every Friday. I encourage you, go to prayer. Pray with other people. And what Paul says he's praying for these people here is that they would be strengthened with power. And this is where he gets into the possibility of a productive life. What comes from a belief in God? What should come from a receiving of his grace? A life of peace, a faith in Jesus Christ that he's taken away all of our sins, that there's nothing that you've ever done, no matter how heinous, no matter how disgusting, no matter how vile, that God can't forgive you for. Paul, who wrote these things, was a murderer. Moses, who freed the people from Egypt, was a murderer. People in the New Testament and in the Old Testament were not good people. Abraham and the prophets and all these guys who you see, they're not set up as ultimate moral examples. Oftentimes they're moral failures and they're people who God has lifted by his grace, called based on his own will, not on their their productivity. And he teaches them something about himself that they did not know prior They didn't previously understand. And as he reveals himself in self-disclosure, people begin to know God. And all of a sudden, there's a life of prayer and dependency on God that happens. And this is what is the result. He says you're starting to be strong with power according to his glorious might. That when you pray, there's strength that comes on the inside. And you begin to live a life of endurance. Instead of giving up and getting depressed and being discouraged, you have the ability now, there's something that starts working on the inside of you where you can endure. And not only endure, but you endure patiently. You suffer happily. And not only just with patience, with joy, he says, as you give thanks to the Father. This happened to me when I got uh, married. My wife and I, Knew each other for about seven years, and we decided to go on a uh, honeymoon to Cancun. And we got down there, and on the first, no, the second day that we were there, I got sick. I drank the water or something. I got so sick, I thought, I'm going to die. I literally had the thought, I'm going to die. I've never felt like this before. I've been sick before, but this is, this is different. This is something, Montezuma's Revenge or whatever it was. I don't know. I was dying. My wife was like, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. You can just leave me to myself. And she was sitting down there thinking, my husband is sick, and he doesn't want me to help him. I don't know what to do. And she starts believing a lie. He doesn't want to be around me. He doesn't want my help. You know, we're struggling. And all of a sudden, I start getting better about a day later. 
and she's down there by the beach, and this guy says to her, hey, if you want to do any water sports, you should probably do them today. A storm is coming. I'm like, oh, what, what kind of storm, she says. You know, like a rainstorm, like a tropical storm. Anyway, 12 hours later, a Category 5 hurricane, similar to Harvey, smashes Cancun and leaves us stranded. We're sleeping on a floor like this for 10 days, stranded in Cancun. This is the introduction to my marriage. We finally are at an airport. We make our way somewhere, somehow to an airport, this small airport where there's only three planes that can get in and out at, the, at a time. And we're there all day long, like eight or nine hours, and trying to figure out what are we going to do. And there's thousands of people who are trying to get back to America and other places. And somebody from the U.S. consulate walks by, and my wife hears her say something about a flight to Dallas, and she grabs me. She says something about a flight to Dallas. You go find her right now and ask her what she said. I said, okay, okay, I'm on it. Excuse me, ma'am. You know, we find out they're going to take a humanitarian flight with Air Mexicana. And they're going to put anybody who wants to get on it and just go to Dallas if you're an American citizen. So we got on it. It was kind of sketch, too. They were like, hey, just walk down that hallway and get on the plane. You know, <laughs> just get on the plane. <laughs> we were like, all right. You know, <laughs> Don't, no checking in, no passport, just get on the plane. We got on the plane, and we start to ascend. And all of a sudden, we start to relax. Oh, thank you, God, we're going home. Because for 10 days, we have been joyfully giving thanks, patiently enduring with power, working inside of us, going, this is not looking good, but we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Thank you, God, we're going to make it. We're getting home. Uh, All of a sudden, out of nowhere, smoke starts pouring out of the vents in the airplane. Fire alarms start going off. Stewardesses are running up and down the aisles. She's looking at me. I'm looking at her. I said, well... To live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's what Paul says. She was like, don't say stuff like that. You can't say that. I was like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, you know? Then, uh, you know, two minutes later, it all stops. Everything calms down. This is your captain speaking. That was a routine air conditioning malfunction. All is well. I'm like, come on, man. I've flown 100 times. I've never seen that. There's nothing routine about that. But Paul is saying, look, what I'm praying for you, and he knew stuff like that and far worse. He was beaten with rods. Paul was lost at sea for a day and a night, shipwrecked. He floated in the open ocean. He was beaten with whips. He received, he said, the, the, the 40 lashes minus one, the 39 lashes, which is the maximum penalty for flogging multiple times. For, for preaching the gospel. And he said, through all of it, it doesn't matter what happens to me circumstantially in life when I live a life of prayer believing that there's a presence of God. And I pray and I interact with God. I can joyfully give thanks to the Father because I am not trying to impress Him or accomplish something with my life based on my own merit. He has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And this becomes a metaphor for the whole Bible is whether you are living in light in the presence of God, or whether you're living in darkness. And he's going to show us here that these prayers and this possibility of a life filled with strength, a life that's filled with endurance, a life that is patient and joyful even in the midst of great difficulty, always saying thank you to God even when I cannot understand what's happening to me, even when I suffer, is rooted in the understanding of this person, Jesus. And this is where we'll start to close. He is, in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. 
Keep going. Jesus is, he says, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things. This is an interesting grammatical statement. Not he was before all things, but Jesus is before all things. This is the tone of the New Testament. It's this idea that Jesus himself claimed to John 8 when his Jewish contemporaries were angry at him. And they were arguing with him about who he is. And he said that Abraham delighted to see his day and he was so happy about it. And they said, what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. How can you say you know Abraham? He said, Abraham, I want to tell you something about Abraham. Before Abraham was ever born, I am. It says with that, they picked up stones to stone him. What was he claiming? He was taking upon himself the title that God showed Moses in the burning bush. Moses was saying, God, if I'm going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to go to these, my brothers and tell them to come follow me out into the desert, who should I tell them is sending me? I'm looking at a fire in a bush. I don't even know you. He says, tell them I am sent you. I am what I am. I am. God is existence. God is eternal. God had no beginning. God has no end. God created time. God created matter. God is. He is existence. And Paul is trying to tell us in this description of Jesus, he says, Jesus is before all things. He is the image of the invisible God. He created all things. By him and for him all things exist, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, so that everything he might be preeminent, or some translations say, so that he might have supremacy. It's not Jason Bourne. It's Jesus with the Bourne supremacy. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, or God lived in him with all of his fullness, and, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is making great claims about the nature of Jesus, and he's saying, this is in case you haven't followed what I'm saying, God is real, he has a will, he sent me to talk to you because of his purposes. Not because I wanted to or thought it was a good idea for my life, a career ambition to be a pastor or a preacher. Paul says, I was called, I was appointed to do something for which I'm suffering and actually don't always want to do. But I'm doing it because it's his purpose for my life and it's to connect you, to reconcile you back to your creator, to reconnect through this man, Jesus. And I've been praying that you be strong since you believed in him and the grace that comes through him. And what's most vital to understand about him is that he is himself the very image of God in the earth. That when you look at Jesus, you look at God. That when you see Jesus, you see the creator. When you see Jesus, you see the one in whom all things hold together. And this is very good news. It's good news because it means that God cares about us and he's come into the world. And when you suffer and you ask the question, why am I going through a hard time? We don't always know what the answer is, but we know what it must not be. It must not be that God doesn't care because God came into the world and suffered with us. God came into the world and took a cross. God came into the world and took scourging on his own back. That when Jesus is being said, he's the image of the invisible God, that we see God when we see Jesus, it shows us that when Jesus comes in and is betrayed by the, the people who he 
gave himself to. Judas, for three and a half years, suffered with Judas and helped Judas and fed Judas and blessed him and washed his feet at the Last Supper. And then Judas walks out the door and sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. You ever been stabbed in the back? Jesus can identify with you. You ever had your family think you're crazy for your faith in God? Jesus can identify with you. God can identify with you. He desired to empathize with humanity in every way possible, and he decided to become like us so that he could feel our pain. God does not want to send people to hell. He is not trying to push people away from him. His desire is to call people close to himself. And in order to do that, he condescends and comes down into our reality to feel what we feel and know what we know that he might be a perfect mediator, a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. But this does have a flip side to it and an unfortunate double edge. If it's true that Jesus comes down and Jesus is God, and when we connect with Jesus, we connect with God, it means if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. When you don't believe in Jesus, you're not believing in God's way and his personhood and his plan of atonement. And this is why Christianity makes these exclusive truth claims. It's not to say everybody else is wrong. It's to say everybody's always been wrong. We've always been missing it. And only God is right. And he has a way that he wants to come save people and show himself to be gracious and bring us into a life of peace. And when we don't live in him, we don't live in the light. We live in darkness. One of the metaphors for hell is darkness. Even in natural science now, we don't have a way to measure darkness. We have a measurement for light. We know when light is present. And what happens is when there is no light, the default, the byproduct is where there's no light, it is what? Dark. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Jesus said that when people go to hell, they are cast into the outer darkness. Where they are is a place where God is not. He says that that place is like fire. There's the eternal fire that burns. And this is not to scare people. He's trying to give us a perspective on reality. He says because what the purpose of God is, is for humanity to bond or reconnect or reconcile with God and to have integrity and to grow more and more functional, more and more whole, more and more uh, full, and to grow into something glorious but the opposite of that is, is not integration or integrity, it's disintegration. And that's what fire does. You look at trees and things that are bound molecularly, they have structure to them. And when fire, when enough heat is applied, those bonds break and they begin to disintegrate and become something unrecognizable when they're compared to their original state of being or the intended purpose for which they were made. And this is the metaphor that hell is trying to get. It's like, if you don't want to live with God in this life, you will find now and then forever that your life becomes increasingly dysfunctional. Your life increasingly breaks apart. The fire, he said, never goes out so that you and your soul disintegrate more and more and more. You become more blame-shifting, more arrogant, more proud, more fighting, more uh, self-promoting forever and ever and ever. And we suffer the eternal state of misery being out of the light, out of the presence of truth and goodness and beauty and righteousness and uprightness and wisdom and love and all that is good and right in the world. And that's what Paul is trying to say. We have been qualified to come into the kingdom of, of light. And I'll end with this, that 
when we were once alienated, hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds, now he reconciled in his own body, his own flesh, by his death, in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, if indeed we continue in this faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of this good news we've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a minister. We'll just read through the rest of this and finish. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He says, in my flesh, in my body, in my life, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, that's you people, that's us, of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That is, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, I struggle with all his energy that, he, that powerfully works inside of me. Keep going. Paul, oh sorry, that's the beginning. <laughs> he goes, he ends up from there in uh, 2, 6 after he says, you know, I'm, I'm laboring and I'm working. God's energy is working inside of me to teach and to preach and to call on people to be reconnected with God. He says, so just as you receive, this is where we started, just as you receive Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Live in him, live in him, live in him. Don't live for vacations. Don't live to travel. Don't live for the weekend. Don't live for Friday night. Don't live to go home and play video games. Don't live for all the things people are living for, but live for him. Live in him. Live rooted in him. Get to know him. Study him. Pray to him. Think about him. Ponder him. As we close, there are three practical instructions. We talked about the presence of God and how Paul prayed that for the possibility of a productive life that's rooted in this person, Jesus and he's, the reason that he's praying and working is for the people of God, and he gives these practical instructions. In the chapter 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This basically can happen when you think about this story, when you take active time to think about this story at home and read the Bible. This is what it means, I think, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it live in you. Think about it. Take time to meditate on it and ponder, Who is Jesus? What did he do? How did he live? What did he teach? Let your mind think. Let it richly wash over your your thinking and your soul and your heart so the word should live in you. Number uh, number two there, verse 3, 23, work. Whatever you do, he says, work heartily for the Lord, not for men. So when you're a school teacher or when you're studying or when you're lifting weights or when whatever you're doing, do it as for the Lord. Treat people as if they were Jesus himself. You know, people who are crossing the street or when people don't treat you right, think about how would Jesus do this? How should I give a best effort? How should I interact with these people? As unto the Lord, what does it mean for me to work unto the Lord? So I'm letting the word of Jesus, this storyline of Jesus, live inside of me richly. And when I'm working, I'm, I'm thinking about how would I treat people and interact with people and do my work, no matter what it is, as if Jesus were in front of me. And finally, as I'm doing that, he says, wrestle in prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2, he tells us that we should be steadfast in prayer and be watchful in it with thanksgiving. 
And the man who first told them the story of Jesus, this is where he ends. His name was Epaphras. He told them the story of Jesus and called them to believe. He tells them, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Jesus, greets you. He's always, in the Greek, wrestling on your behalf in his prayers so that you could be mature and confident, fully assured in all the will of God. Now, here's what I'm saying today. God has a purpose for us. His purpose for us is that we would be rooted in a person, that we would get to know in deep relationship a person, Jesus. And just as you've first been exposed to Jesus or heard about Jesus, the Bible calls us to be rooted in Jesus. The reason we should be rooted is because he wants us to have fruit that comes out, productivity that comes out, kindness and gentleness and patience and self-control and uh, a tender heart and believing the best about other people and forgiving people even when it's hard. And Jesus says, if you will obey my word, you will be like a person who digs down deep with a good foundation on bedrock and builds a house that cannot be shaken even when Hurricane Harvey smashes against it. That's the kind of life that God has for you to live. And Paul says, you'll be fruitful, you'll be productive. And I'm praying for you, and Roland is praying for you, and other people are praying for you, that you will have that kind of life as well. So I encourage you to do these three things as we, as we close. Let the Word live in you richly. Read your Bible. Mark out a time, half an hour every morning, and read your Bible. Just see what God will do. Work, when you go to work every day, when you go to class every day, think about how could I interact with these people as if it was for Jesus? And finally, wrestle in prayer. Wrestle like Epaphras for other people. Do the work of God. Begin to pray for people. Make a list of people if you need to. And pray for them and think about them and start to say, what's good for them and what's in their best interest and how can I serve them? And this is the way we'll be rooted in Christ and find ourselves living with God's purpose in mind. Roland. Solid. Can we praise God for that, please? <laughs> I want to do uh, now is, as we've heard the word of God.